0: Good morning. Good morning. You may be seated. So, uh, Pastor John mentioned that we are going to be celebrating baptism today uh, in all of our services, including this one. So, just just a couple things to, to think about. Um, if... Watching these baptisms and hearing their stories and all of that maybe causes you to go, maybe I need to learn a little bit more about baptism. You haven't been baptized and you want to know a little bit more. Just put uh, like information on baptism on your communication card and we'll send you uh, a communique on that that'll help you uh, understand it a little bit better. Also, if you already understand baptism but you haven't been baptized as a believer, um, I would I would... Say you can get baptized today. may not be the right time, uh, but I would uh, say that you could get baptized today. And we have elders that will work through that decision with you right after the service, some of our elders. And so right through the middle doors, you can go out there, um, say after the sermon, right after the sermon, and you can go talk to one of them and, uh, and talk about we've got extra clothes for you and, and towels and, and all of that. Uh, so uh, we would encourage you, and you say, well, you know, is it really that important? Well, think of it this way. Uh, If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, and you had never partaken in communion, you've been, say, a follower for 10 years or something like that, you've never taken communion, does that, like, mean that you're not a follower or that you're a bad person or anything? I don't think so. Would you be missing something? Would there be a, a lack of possibly obedience to what Jesus said to do happening in your life that would maybe be impacting you in some ways that you wouldn't want? I would say pretty sure, and I think you would say the same thing. It's the same thing on baptism. It's a matter of, of obedience. It's an opportunity to publicly declare something that's happened in your life. And you say, well, that happened so long ago. Uh, we had someone last night who, uh, who shared... That he received Christ uh, a while ago, he was baptized as a baby, and, and there's differences on that, uh, legitimate differences within Christian churches, but he came to the point where he said he, he really needed to make a public uh, profession of his faith, and maybe that's you, and so just encourage you to, to prayerfully, prayerfully consider that. All right. So um, John Ortberg, in a book called Toils and Snares, I mean, never read a uh, Dangerous Toils and Snares. If you've never, never read a, a John Ortberg book, I highly recommend it. He is uh, very, very insightful and also very humorous. And he tells a story that I just want to read to you. It's about taking his kids to McDonald's, and he says, "When we take our children to the shrine of the golden arches, they always lust for the meal that comes with the little cheap." Fries, a combination christened uh, in a moment of marketing genius, the Happy Meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. Their advertisements have convinced my children they have a little McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their souls. <laughs> Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a Happy Meal. I try to buy off my kids sometimes. I tell them to order only food, and I'll give them a quarter to buy a little toy on their own. But the cry goes up, I want a Happy Meal! And all over the restaurant, people crane their necks to look at the tight-fisted, penny-pinching, cheapskate of a parent (laughs) who would deny a child a meal of great joy. The problem with the Happy Meal is that the happy wears off, and they need the new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one. Remember that Happy Meal? What great joy I found there. Happy Meals bring happiness only to McDonald's. <laughs> you ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin? 20 billion Happy Meals, that's why. When you get older, you don't get any smarter, your Happy Meals just get more expensive. <laughs> All right, so uh, the series that we're in is about learning contentment, and we launched it last week, and and this week is our second week of that series, and we're talking about, when we talk about contentment, we're talking about a, um, a deep joy, a deep satisfaction in life that, that we have, whatever our circumstances are, and some of the things that we talked about last week as we started this, we talked about that contentment is not like shooting low uh, so that we're, we can, you know reach that low goal. It's, it's not about a lack of ambition, of a good holy ambition. It's not a lack of drive. That's not what, what it's about. It's also not transcending circumstances. So, contentment doesn't mean, yeah, uh, some bad things are happening in my life, but I feel no grief, I feel no upset, I feel no uh, sadness over what's happening in my life, because I transcend my circumstances. No. We can have contentment and grief at the same time, and we often, we often do. So we also talked about the fact that discontent eats us alive. Uh, some of the ways that discontent show up in our lives is through envy and lust and greed, and just think about how all those things can, can impact the way we view life, our sense of joy and happiness, our sense of being right with God and walking with God, and the things that we can get into the problems, big problems for our families and for ourselves when we are run by envy, lust, greed, and other forms of discontent. So I think it's an important topic for us to spend four weeks on. It's not like we don't talk about these kinds of things all the time, but the focus, I think, is worthwhile. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And it's on page 1181 in those Bibles. And if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are reading from the NIV, the New International uh, Version. And if you're brand new with us, uh, hopefully you've got a new here brochure on your way in. And on the inside, there is a sermon application guide. And so there's room there for taking notes, for some of the quotes will be in there from, uh, from the sermon. And then there are. Questions for reflection, and we use these in most of our small groups that meet throughout the week in home. So uh, we're about bringing the story of God to life, and that means bringing it into our everyday life. We begin something here every week that, that we continue on through the rest of the week. And so that's, that's what we're about. And uh, on any given week, when you don't pick up one of these, you can pick up a sermon application, God, on the way in, on the kiosk, on the way in. So we're going to pray for God to illuminate our path, to show us the way, to teach us from his word, to bring conviction in our hearts. That's what illumination prayer is. We pray this before we turn to the word and listen. And this one is based on 1 John chapter five. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we find our hope and our salvation in you alone. While the kingdoms of this world will crumble, your kingdom will stand firm forever. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding as we look to your word, open our eyes to see your truth, strengthen our faith, lead us, give us confidence in your promises and the fullness that we have when we have a life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes the letter uh, that we have in our Bibles, it's called Philippians, he writes it to the Philippian church, he's in prison and they have sent a guy named Epaphroditus with a financial gift to him to help him out so he can buy food and take care of some of his basic needs while he's in prison. And this is not a, this is a very poor congregation. He talks about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for example. This is a very poor congregation, but they've sent some money to help him uh, uh, in, in his time of need. And he's, in this part of the letter, he's responding to that. He's saying, thank you. Thank you for that. But He also wants to teach a lesson on contentment while he's doing that. So uh, follow along, beginning in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4, where it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, all this, through him who gives me strength. All right, so last week we began a two-part sermon. So today is part two. We asked the question, why do we need to learn To be content, it's good news. We can learn. Why? Because it's not going to be easy to learn to be content. I just tell you that right up front, and you'll you'll pick that up as we go through this. It's not easy. You struggle with that. Every single one of us of us struggle with that in our lives. So when something is not easy, we usually have to have a real strong reason why that we can keep going back to. And so this is this is the why. And the first why that we gave last week is the only one that we gave last week is that we were made in the image, and for the glory of God, who is content." So God is a content God, uh, and so this is one of his traits, not all of his traits are things that we can be or should even strive for. This is one of his traits that he wants us to emulate, to reflect him, image, reflect this in our lives okay so secondly why do we need to learn to be content because contentment expresses gratitude for god's grace and rescue it expresses gratitude so just think for a moment what does discontent express to god all right think about that not all discontent is uh is bad i mean we talked about that last week some There is a certain amount of discontent that we should have, a holy discontent with the brokenness of our world, with the injustices of our world. There should be a discontent with uh, where sin is in our lives and how we hurt people and we even hurt ourselves. And so there should be a holy discontent in our lives. Uh, We also talked about the fact that we can be discontented with those things and be uh, content at, at the same time. So, I want you to think again what does discontent express to our God? Two stories from the Bible illustrate what discontent expresses to God and how God feels about our discontent. So, one of them is from Genesis chapter 3, so, it goes all the way back to the beginning. After the creation, it's it's the story of where Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the forbidden tree. They eat because the serpent entices them with discontent. In the words of Mike Cosper, in an article that he wrote a few years ago, he says, we have here a satanic assault on Adam and Eve's contentment. That's what it is, a satanic assault. The serpent is basically saying, God has held out on you. God told you not to eat this fruit. Because he's holding out on you. Uh, He's given you less than you need. He's given you less than what you deserve. Eat this. And you'll be like him. And therefore you can have anything you want. You can have all the things that he's held back from you. You'll be a God just like him. And Adam and Eve, consider, consider this. Adam and Eve are in paradise. It's a perfect place. And they have God. They have a continual fellowship with God. But It's not enough for them. They want equality with God. They want equality with God. And they want absolute autonomy. They don't want to have to do what God says. They want to do what they think is right. Even, they probably haven't thought this through, but even though what God says is right for them is what's good for them. And what they might determine is good for them may not be good for them. And so, again, what does does it communicate what does their discontent communicate to God? Second story comes from the Israelites in the wilderness. If you're not familiar with their story, um, this is the story of Moses and the Israelites for hundreds of years were slaves in Egypt. And God calls Moses to lead them out of Israel, and, um, and I mean, out of Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, they go into a wilderness. Um, and in the wilderness, they are waiting and God is preparing them to take them into the promised land. And that's the plan, to take them into the promised land. Uh, but uh, they, as soon as trouble hits, and trouble hits, uh, God doesn't protect them from trouble. It's part of their preparation process. When trouble hits, they get very angry, and they threaten to kill Moses several times. And they uh, turn away from God, and they complain against God, and they grumble against God, and say, well, you know, why, why, have, you, why have you taken us out of Egypt just to bring us here and kill us? And... And this happens over and over again, and over and over again, God responds with grace until he doesn't anymore. And he responds at one, at, he eventually comes to the point where he begins to respond with judgment. It's a deadly, a deadly judgment. Now, the interesting thing is the Bible is filled with complaints toward God, and they're not always, God doesn't always respond. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Jewish people and the prayer book of the church, They're models of prayer, and so uh, the Psalms are filled, many, many Psalms are filled with complaints against God, accusations against God, cynical accusations against God, things like, what's the matter, are you sleeping that you can't even hear me when I speak to you? Don't you even care? You said you care, but I don't think you really do care, and those, those are Psalms, those are prayers that are supposed to be models for us for prayer. So what's the difference between the Israelites in the wilderness and those psalmist prayers? And I can't answer the question definitively. We looked at this a couple of years ago, maybe more than two years ago, but there's a couple of things that that seem to be distinctive between the two kinds of prayers. And the first one is that the Israelites, in their complaining in the wilderness, one of the things that comes through really strongly is a sense of entitlement. Uh, Like, we deserve this, and God needs to do it my way and in my timing. Whereas in the Psalms, what you find oftentimes is they are holding God up to his own promises and his own words. And their complaint is, why do I see a gap between what I'm experiencing and what I thought uh, you said? That's one. Second one is just a, a fundamental lack of gratitude in the people of Israel in the promised land. And even... Even worse, I mean in the, in the wilderness, even worse, one of the things that, that you see is that these times of complaining, of revolting against God and revolting against Moses, and that probably would be one of the other differences is there's that actual mutiny that the people are about to, like, like they, they build a golden calf. It's one of their mutinies, right? They, they decide not to follow that God, but, the, but to create an image of the God that they want. Okay, so... Um, most of these episodes happen shortly after God has miraculously and in stunning ways delivered them in one way or provided for them in some just incredible way. Something that the psalmist probably never saw uh, in their entire life. Many of the psalmists, David had Goliath, but his life wasn't filled with all these miracles of God providing food when he didn't have it and all this kind of stuff. And so it's like these are some of the differences between... The Psalms and the kind of complaining that you see there. But this sense of entitlement and ingratitude kind of come together. Um, I uh, read a blog post by Seth Godin who is like interestingly uh, a marketing guru and marketing usually is not something that uh, we would turn to uh, because uh, usually a lot of the marketing is trying to get us to feel discontent so that we'll buy their product, right? Uh, but Seth Godin is a little bit of a different uh, guy and uh, he puts out a post every single day and they're all short. And on the last time I was speaking on this, I actually had read one of his posts and it was about this. And so here's what he writes. He says, you're entitled to your entitlement if you want it, but why would you? Entitlement gets us nothing but heartache. It blinds us to what's possible. It insulates us from the magic of gratitude, and most of all, it lets us off the hook, pushing us away from taking responsibility in action and toward apportioning blame and anger instead. Goes on the right, he says. Gratitude, on the other hand, is um, just as valid a choice. Except that gratitude makes us open the possibility; it brings us closer to others, and it makes us happier. And then he finishes the post with this. He says, the simple hack at work here, we're not grateful because we're happy. We're happy because we're grateful. And there's a lot of science behind that statement that he makes there. So think again, what does this content express to God? You knew the answer all along, ingratitude, a lack of thanksgiving in our hearts. Contentment, on the other hand, expresses gratitude for God's rescue wasn't just the Israelites who were rescued. If you we were a follower of Jesus, we have been rescued. We have been rescued in Christ. You have to learn contentment because it expresses gratitude to God. To be ungrateful, just think about it, to be ungrateful is, in a sense, a denial in our hearts that what God has done is important, that maybe we didn't need that much rescue, that all we needed was a little, you know, just a little help that we really don't understand grace, that we really don't understand the depth of our sin that is matched by the death of God the Son. Um, So, um, I shared this story at my mom's memorial uh, service a couple of months ago, and I'll read you what I wrote in this tribute. I said, back in 1994, my mom put together a book of sorts. So, this is... um, these are pages about this big. They have a picture and then a typed story underneath. So she did this back in, in 1994. And it's a story of each of the men she dated and loved in her life. And it starts with a, boy, a crush on a boy in elementary school, then in high school, and then in her adult life. And she explains what prompted it in 1994. is was an interesting thing. I'm not going to go into that. But let's just say, as I wrote in the tribute, she wasn't good at choosing men. <laughs> she let some good ones get away also. And her relationships were often, in her words, stormy. But let me read to you what she wrote about her last boyfriend, or man friend, a man who was likely hiding that he was married when he was pursuing her. She said, after telling the story, she says, broken and bitter, I moved back to Miami in 1966. So we were living in Milwaukee for a few years then. Of course, my son and mother came with me. I would have been eight years old. I was then 36 and tired of men and disappointments. Four years later, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And God became my husband and father of my little son. And I never needed a man's love. Again, does that mean she wasn't open to a man's love? No, it's not what she's saying. She's saying she found contentment in Christ. She had discovered what that is, and her gratitude for what he has had done for her was a constant throughout her life. She was really one of the most she was one of the most contented in Christ people that I've ever known. Number three why should we be content? Because contentment is an essential expression of faith in God. If we have faith in God, one of its expressions is going to be contentment. Now, we are saved. Um, We enter into salvation. We enter into relationship with God, the Bible tells us, solely on his grace because of what he has done, not anything that we've done, and we appropriate it, we receive it, it's a gift, that's what that grace is. It, we appropriate it, the Bible says, by putting our faith in what he's done. Faith is um, trusting God. That's what it means. When we put our faith in God, it means I am trusting God. That's what it's about. It says to God, I trust you, I trust your power, I trust your grace, I trust your plan. One of the quintessential stories in Scripture... It's one that many of you are familiar with that, that teaches a faith that believes in what God is doing in spite of what's happening all around them is the story of Joseph that takes up the last 14 chapters, I think, of Genesis. And so uh, this is the Joseph with the coat of many colors. This is the Joseph who was, got that coat because he was his father's favorite. The Joseph, that his brothers hated him because he was his father's favorite. And when they got a chance, they threw him into a pit. And they spent some time trying to decide, what are we going to do? And most of them wanted to kill him. Just let's, rid him from the earth. And some slave traders on their way to Egypt came through. So they sold him to the slave traders. And the slave traders sold him into slavery in Egypt. And he spent 12 years, first in slavery, and then eventually in prison. With basically almost nothing that in the story that would say, you know, um, this is how he had a resilient faith um, through all of this. As the story progresses after 12 years, he comes to a a position of power through a miraculous working of God. And so in that position of power, he's given the ability to save his family during a famine. And so his father Jacob and his 10 brothers who tried to kill him and his one younger brother who's been born after His father thought he was dead. And so in the story, his father dies and the brothers are sure he's going to kill him. He's going to kill him now because there's nothing holding him back. Didn't want to hurt his father's feelings by killing his brothers. But Joseph says, no, you don't understand. I trust God and I know I trust a providential God, a God whose hand is hidden and working behind the scenes. That's what providence is about. That God is always working behind the scenes. Romans 8.28 that many of us know and have memorized, all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's purposes. That's providence. That's because of God's hidden hand working behind everything, even using our sin for his ultimate purposes and other people's sin and evil and injustice. And so he says those famous words, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God brought him there and uh, was able to bring him there even through the use of people's own sins. So you never really get into Joseph's head while he is persevering through difficulty until at this point you see what it is. God, Joseph, trusted God's providential plan. You see it in Paul in prison. When, um, when he was doing well, he said, when I'm out and I've been doing well financially at times in my life, I learned the secret of being content because contentment is not just, uh, struggle with contentment may be stronger when we have a lot than when we have uh, a little. Um, so he says, when I have a lot, but I've also learned that even in prison, Um, maybe even hungry at some times and cut off from my freedom, even there, you know what? I'm content even here. I've learned the secret of being content even here because I am participating here, wherever I am, I'm participating in God's ultimate good plan. may not be good for me right now, but I'm for God and I'm for His good plan and whatever it takes, that's what I want to be about. I want to be about His purposes Now, when things are going well, it's difficult to determine if we're experiencing contentment because we're trusting God or because of the blessings that we've received from God. Have you ever thought about that? When things are going well, and like you're really happy, and you have all of a sudden this sense, well, I'm contented in a way that I don't think I have been in years. And then that little sneaky little voice that says, yeah, because everything is working out for you right now, but what if you were to lose it? I was uh, at Black Sheep Coffee Cafe a couple of Fridays ago um, and I was taking care of two of my granddaughters. Um, somebody asked me last night, you didn't mention Lois, was she there? I said, no, she wasn't there. Oh, okay, now I, that's better. Um, but I was taking care of them all day, do a lot of times on Fridays and uh, two of my granddaughters and uh, there was this uh, six month old and three year old, gran- these, these two granddaughters, there's a boy that was two years old at a table in another area. We were in the rugged area where there's some toys for kids. And there was this little boy, he's two years old, and a newborn baby, and the mom and dad and a grandma that were sitting at a table. And the boy was just having meltdown after meltdown, the two-year-old boy. and. Uh, <laughs> You could just tell a father was, you know, trying to appease him, make him happy, but nothing would really make him happy. And he was trying to get him, why don't you go play with the kids over there? My granddaughter, my three-year-old. And uh, he, he like nothing. No, you know, he starts walking and he falls on the ground. Ah, he's really just really upset. And uh, after about 20 minutes of coaxing, the father gets him into the circle there. And he, and he looks at me and he says, oh, ever since our newborn was born five weeks ago, he's been like this. And I remember our, when two boys 18 months apart, 18, 22 months apart, I don't know, 18, 22, something like that. Uh, the same thing happening, very similar. Not quite as bad, but very similar. And he looked at me and he sees me where he's been watching. These two kids are just content. And he goes, man, you really got this thing figured out, don't you? <laughs> and, I, you know, I, we talked about that for a while. And, uh, and the reality is my grandkids just weren't in one of those stages where they're disconnected. You know, you go through those. Um, but the main reason they were happy was because they always had something to play with. Okay, so they're not in a stage where nothing is going to make them happy. But they also have a toy. And so there's a bunch of toys there in that circle. The six-month-old... Uh, All I have to do is get something shiny, one of the toys, shiny, put it across the rug. She doesn't crawl yet, but she can do this, you know. And when she gets it, she looks at it for a while, and then she gets a little bit, and I get another shiny thing. I go, you know. And they're happy. So, but what would happen if there were no toys at the coffee shop and I want to sit there and drink a coffee and I want them to sit still (laughs) or not bother me it's not going to happen right because they have a shiny toy so Eric Raymond in his book and I've got a reference I talked about it last week uh, I've got a reference in the outline at the end of the outline he writes this he says what if God were to take away what currently makes you happy like he took away Joseph's fancy coat and seat of honor. What if providence brought you to a pit? So he was basically saying, What if God took away your toys? In some ways, that is the ultimate test, sometimes maybe the only test, of whether we're putting our contentment and joy and satisfaction in God and in Christ, or whether we are putting it in the toys. Um, but those things will reveal it, whether we're putting a trust in God who we believe in His plan, we believe that He is good, we believe that ultimately, even if we go through difficulties, that in the end what's good in God's plan is going to be good for us and cooperate with whatever that is and find our contentment in that. The last point is this, how do, what is the why? And this might be the most important of all four that I've given, okay? So if you haven't been paying attention until now, hopefully you'll hear this. The last one is that contentment is a byproduct of intimacy with Christ. It's a byproduct. And if intimacy, that word scares you, um, basically what I'm saying is a very close relationship with Christ. Um, when we have a genuine relationship, a close relationship, with Jesus an active relationship with Jesus there is in us in this journey with Jesus a growing sense of contentment and it's a byproduct of that relationship on the other hand if we're racked with discontent envy and lust and greed and all those forms of discontent it's usually a sign that we are drifting in our relationship with Jesus, that we're not holding tight and close and growing in that relationship. So Eric Raymond, in his book uh, references something that Sinclair uh, Ferguson wrote about uh, where he talks about four dimensions of knowing Christ and of experiencing Christ that can impact our contentment in God. Now this is really dense stuff and I'm not going to spend very much time on it, but it's in your outlines and I would encourage you to spend some time reflecting on it. There's one of the questions, is a reflection question on this, so I'm just going to go over it quickly and get to how do we develop intimacy with Christ, alright, and that's what we're going to finish with. So The first dimension is that everything we need and everything we lack is found in Christ. The scripture is really clear on that. He is all-sufficient for us. He is enough. We are not enough. He is enough. The second dimension is this all-sufficient Christ is with us. All right. So when we have a relationship with Jesus, it means he's, he's with us. And the scripture in Hebrews says, uh, be content because he will never leave you or forsake you. Okay. There's part of the reasoning is, you understand, God is with you. Uh, dimension number three is that we are in this all-sufficient Christ so the primary picture of what it means to be a Christian is that we are in Christ more often than anything else except maybe brothers and sisters in Christ as a description of Christians in the apostle Paul and so it means union with Christ we're united with him we are in him and then finally dimension number four this all-sufficient Christ is in us God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. That's what happens when we cross, cross a line of faith, where we receive God's grace and put our faith in him, is the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. He doesn't reside in us until that happens, until we've experienced forgiveness and experienced the righteousness of Christ, where that gets credited to us and our sins go to him on the cross. All right, how does this become a reality in our lives? How can we be more intimate in our relationship with jesus so a few weeks ago two or three weeks ago as we were finishing our series on esther i told a story from a book um uh by um, uh david david kinnaman and mark matlock uh, wrote the book. It's right here and the whole idea is it's based on research that the barna group did barna group is is kind of like the christian uh wing of or the a Christian equivalent of Gallup uh, organization to do a lot of research, and the, part of their research showed five keys to a resilient faith in young people. In other words, there's an epidemic of young people that after they grow up and leave um, their home, their home church, that a lot of them drop out and a growing number stay as dropouts and just walk you know, away from their faith. So they researched for this latest book, they researched, okay, what... Do we see in common are the ones for whom uh, who have a resilient faith, who bump up against the same kinds of questions and difficulties of carrying out their faith, but they have a resilient faith. and They found five key elements, and the first one that they go into is intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy with Jesus. So, hopefully, based on their research, they say here are some of the things that bring about intimacy with Jesus. So, this is really important for parents, but it's important first if you're a parent for yourself. Because you can't, especially when you hear the very first one, uh, you can't pass on something that you don't have. You don't have a resilient faith. You can't pass on a resilient faith. That doesn't mean your kids won't have a resilient faith, but you're lowering the odds of it significantly. So three things of the many that they gave. One of them is we are loved into loving Jesus. You want to grow in intimacy with Jesus? Understand this concept. We are loved into loving Jesus. This is huge. (laughs) What they found is this. There's a quote from the book. Experiencing Jesus is found along a relational pathway with family, friends, and other people who love and experience Jesus. In other words, it's caught. It's not just taught. It's taught, but it's not just taught. We're loved into loving Jesus. We're not going to do this alone. We're not going to do it through superficial relationships with other believers. We're not going to do it by being super parents. We need others to come in. There's that other study that we often reference that says... Well, kids with resilient faith usually have five other adults outside of their family who love Jesus and are involved in their lives. Just average. It means many have more, a few have some less than that. So we are loved into loving Jesus. The importance of Christian community cannot be overstated if you want to grow closer to Jesus. Number two, resist cultural Christianity, but seek the tra- transforming Christ. they go into quite a bit of detail on this let me just summarize it by saying it's um resisting cultural christianity means resist the urge to just fit in to do the things that your church expects and to do it because they expect it or your parents expect it but instead pursue a relationship with jesus which is a transforming relationship the living jesus which is a transforming relationship jesus Never said, hey, you need to make a decision to follow me. What he said is, you need to follow me and learn from me. And you're going to walk with me. And scripture, again, when it talks about the Christian life, one of the major images of what it is, it is a walk. It's a walk with Jesus. It's a relationship. Too often, they spend a lot of time in this, too often Christian churches, Christian families, individuals, we settle for give me an entertaining and inspiring experience. And i go from one entertaining and inspiring experience to to the next and they say no it's discipleship it's growing in disciples if you want a resilient faith it's going to take a lot more than an entertaining or inspiring experience the nitty-gritty of relating to jesus in prayer relating to jesus with other believers relating to jesus on mission for him it's about discipleship training and regular godward rhythms that open us up to hear God speak to us personally. That's that's how you have intimacy with Christ. You hear God speak to you personally, not necessarily in an audible voice, but through his word and through the quietness of the way the spirit speaks to us. And it opens us up to God's work in us and in our lives. You're loved into loving Jesus resist cultural Christianity, go for the real thing, a relationship. It's not going to be entertaining all the time. It's not even going to be easy. It's going to be difficult a lot of the time. Like any relationship, it's going to have its ups and downs and its difficulties. And then finally, fearlessly ask the big questions of life and pursue answers in Jesus. Now, I'm just guessing, I have no idea. I'm just guessing, talking about Christianity, not, not our church, but talking about Christianity in general, it could be our church as well. I would guess that Being a home where students feel uh, encouraged to bring the tough, really big questions of life out into the open and to ask those questions—I would guess that that kind of home is a minority home in Christian homes. That's actually encouraged. Even a smaller minority. This is just my guess. Even a smaller minority um, actually. You know, or or yeah, a, a small minority actually are a place where you can do that. But a much smaller group of people actually seeks to find answers, seek to find answers in Jesus. In other words, it's not enough as a Christian parent, as difficult as this can be, because it can be very difficult sometimes, to encourage tough, big questions. You might have a home where, yeah, my kids can tell me anything, But you move to that next level where you not only take seriously the questions, but you take seriously enough Jesus that you will seek the answers in him and in his word. That's where you're going to turn. Not in a dogmatic, well, the Bible says this and you just need to fall in line. But in a dialogue way where you talk about what the Bible says over against what maybe a student is hearing uh, in the rest of their life. So, I want to read you a story um, that Kinnaman uh, tells at the end of the chapter on intimacy with Jesus. and uh, I just want to remind you of the story that I told a few weeks ago. If you were here, if you weren't, he tells a story about his daughter deciding to go to Berkeley and how he was dead set against it. But he said he eventually changed his mind about it. And so here he tells the story of how he changed his mind. He said, over the course of a month or so, our family had at least a half dozen conversations with people I deeply respect that caused me to rethink my assumptions about Berkeley. Now remember, he says, I am a researcher and I know the stats on people falling away from their faith. And Berkeley is not the kind of place that is known for propping up people's faith, and helping them you know, deal with tough questions. And so he says, well, more to the point, caused me to rethink my assumptions about the value of the school and the active Christian presence in and around it. In other words, place is not devoid of Christians, inside and out and around it. I began to see the school for what it is, a crazy place, yes, but an institution that could meet Emily's aspirations for a high-level education and a place where her faith could grow. For four weeks, those four weeks were unreal. Emily, Jill, her mom, my wife, and I had so many unexpected conversations that slowly shifted our planning. God guided our perception through people like Steve, Catherine, Andrew, Kara, Andy, Ryan, Mark, and others. Okay, why does he mention those names? Because he just said, you've got to have other people in your life. <laughs> we don't know these people. He's saying he knows them, and their family knows them. Then one night over dinner, as a decision drew near, we prayed together. I can't explain it, but I experienced a wave of emotion. I powerfully felt that God was showing us that Berkeley was the place. Jesus was calling Emily to the Bay Area and to Cal. He was calling her to be on mission with him there. I still felt some trepidation, but a sense of peace that it was the right choice overwhelmed me. Now, halfway through her sophomore year, we see how the hand of God was directing her path. She's thriving at the school and in her faith. About two months after Emily committed to Cal, Jill was diagnosed with brain cancer. It was a horrible year for our family. But having our daughter close was a gift. Her first college choice had been a university on the East Coast. But having Emily in the same time zone was a small part of God's care during a difficult year. That's how Emily went to Berkeley. God spoke to us. Christians from around the planet experience God in their lives. We need to tell these stories of modern day faith at every turn from pulpits and in Bible studies, but also through social media and in our conversations and every time we think of them. Jesus speaks. Following Jesus is more than just believing the right things or feeling warm fuzzies about him. Being Christian is more than being on team Jesus. It means we find the very essence of ourselves at his feet. Experiencing the real Jesus is the starting point and the ending point. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you. for the blessing of life in you, for the life that you call us into. We thank you for what we're going to be celebrating now as we respond in singing, in communion, as we respond through baptism together as a congregation, as a church family. We pray uh, for everyone who's going to get baptized. We pray for you to work powerfully in and through that. And we thank you that you have called us into an intimate, close, real relationship with you. May we all pursue that with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue our worship by responding together.